Good People, Cool Things is a podcast featuring conversations with entrepreneurs, writers, musicians, and other creatives. Get inspired by their stories to do your own cool thing. And here's your host, Joey Held. Welcome to Good People, Cool Things. Today's guest is Chris Meyer, who is the author of three different books, including Life in 20 Lessons, What a Funeral Guy Discovered About Life from Death, as well as The Wood, A Satire on Life in Hollywood, and an upcoming book all about basketball, four months, and a lifetime. We're chatting what it's like to run a funeral home, how Chris kind of stumbled into this, but all of the great lessons he's learned along the way. We're looking at his writing process. We're getting a little bit of a peek behind the curtain, behind the silver screen, if you will, into Hollywood, plus so much more. Chris also shares the sneak peek of a new business that he is launching Later this month, funandmoving.com, which is geared towards those 65 and older and providing ways for them to continue to maintain good physical and mental health. Lots of fantastic stuff in this episode. So thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so via the shop, goodpeoplecoolthings.com slash shop. Lots of goodies in there. Always a fun time and a few more coming down the line. So be sure to be checking out the shop for all the latest and greatest. You can also get in touch with the show on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at GPCT Podcast, or send an email, joey at goodpeoplecoolthings.com. For now, here's the conversation with Chris. For people who don't know who Chris Meyer is, can you give us your elevator pitch? But can you also tell us the elevator that we're riding on while you give us this pitch? I don't know if there's an elevator pitch. I, I've had such a, a wide and varied life. It's been really cool. I, I'm a New York State licensed attorney. Um, I made a low-budget film in New York City for about $100,000, went to a bunch of film festivals. I um, decided to load up my car with my film and move to L.A., um, I spent 11 years in Los Angeles trying to be a screenwriter and, uh, you know, ended up getting a manager and an agent. In that time, I was working for the, one of the foremost fashion photographers of our time, a guy named Herb Ritz at his pr- uh, fashion production company and commercial company. I worked on a bunch of studio lots, uh, most notably uh, Param- the Paramount lot, and I did their... Uh, Ampus campaign, which is the Academy Award campaign each year for about three or four years. That was very interesting. And then I uh, had a child and we decided, man, it's time to get real here and uh, bought a funeral home. Yeah. So it was really <laughs> a natural segue from a screenwriter to a funeral home owner. Um, and that really is my quick elevator pitch. But now I'm primarily in building tech sites. So yeah, it's been a, a crazy life, a fun life. I have three sons and who are really the apples of my eye and uh, been very happily married for 20 years. So that's it. Fantastic. Well, well there's lots <laughs> to cover there for sure. Um, <laughs> yes, there is. I, I think my first question is, how did you go? Like, what was the, like you said, it's a natural segue from living out in LA and then uh buying a funeral home. So how did that come about? Yeah, how did you get into crazy. that? Yeah. So we were in, we had a friend of the family who would be at all of our family gatherings. And he always said to me, you know, Chris, Chris, he was a mortician. And he would say, Chris, you know, the, the funeral business is such a solid business and it's so good. And, you know, there's always people dying and there'll always be a job. And I was like, you know, you like you, I would look at the guy and go, come on, dude, really? <laughs> I mean, but 
You know, uh, we had a baby in Los Angeles. And uh, like I said, I had been there about 11 years at this time. And my wife was really the primary breadwinner. And um, she's like, you know, I really want to be a mom. And I was like, yeah, I, I don't, I think it's time to grow up. And, and seeing this young boy looking up at me and, you know, that was the really the biggest dose of reality that I could ever see. And um, lo and behold, we decided, you know, my family was all in New York and hers is up in Northern California. And she said, I'd like to be close to my family. So that was really the best option that I had at the time. I was an attorney, but I knew that I didn't want to go back to that because that would have been really crazy long hours and starting at the bottom again. And so this was a business opportunity and I figured I could be the, you know, the business guy in the back end and this guy could run the front of the shop. And it was a small family home, funeral home, and you had to do everything. So, you know, to be profitable, I had to be really a lot more involved than I, than I had originally anticipated. But um, as it turned out, it was like such a, a profound, profoundly great experience from so many different levels. And um, it was just, uh, you know, it was the basis of my first book. Um, and that was called, uh, it's called Life in 20 Lessons. And, and the idea was, you know, after about eight, six, eight years into the business, I started hearing the same thing from surviving families who would always sort of caution me and say, do you have, you know, they, we'd get to know each other, Chris, do you have children? These, then they'd be like, you know, get, be with them. They're young once, take the time, you know, I, I'm here and I'm telling you, take the time, you know, really take the time. And so I, I, I really did heed all of those, um, those warnings, so to speak, and um, just delved into coaching and being with my son and everything. So that was sort of the, the short story of how I got into it. And it was insanity. And again, I had I had no family history of being in the funeral business and no specific calling, but for the fact that I had a really nice relationship with my grandfather and, you know, he ended up dying. And, you know, that was, I, I think the greatest thing was the empathy that I understood from him. He was my best friend and I saw him aging. And that was, as a young man, that was probably the most close experience I had to the funeral industry. But no, it was, it, it's been wonderful. I'm still here. It's been about 16 years now. And uh, yeah, what a, what a crazy life. Crazy. Yeah. But fun. Yeah, that's, that's always good. Yeah. Crazy and fun is, is a nice combo. And we'll get into the book a little bit, but you mentioned how seeing your grandpa get old and eventually die was kind of your, your introduction to this. And I think that's yeah. probably true of, uh, of a lot of people, that's kind of their, I think so. their, yeah, their introduction of like maybe it's the first time they're in a funeral home. I know I played little league with a kid whose dad ran uh, the funeral home in in my hometown, but I I only like my only knowledge of that was like oh okay he runs a funeral home, but like I never right. went in there. I never really had a reason to. <laughs> um, but yeah. it was just kind of like oh that's like what your dad does. Cool. Um, but then there's also, and I think this is a nice tie-in because of your Hollywood background. There's the show Six Feet Under. Which I like. I still think that's one of my favorite shows. I think. Yeah. Top. A lot. Of I mean, top three finales, right? So yeah. Yeah. Have you seen the show for one? Yes. And how how accurate is it to what you're doing on a daily basis? So I wasn't a regular watcher of it, but everyone says, and I've seen a couple of them, and it's spot on. You know, and it was really 
was it two brothers, right? And mm. mine was like a young friend of our family. So it was a lot of people would come in and say, oh my gosh, this is like six feet under here. <laughs> um, but no, it was it was truly spot on. I think that's what made the, the show so believable and so um, well-liked by people. It just felt real and organic. And that's truly what it was. Obviously it was well-acted, but yeah, no, uh, it, it was it was spot on. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I think another reason why at least why I like the show is because, yes, while there's death present in literally every episode because they show you how someone dies and then the episode kind of revolves around that um, at the beginning of each episode. But there's also a lot about life within there, too. And, And again, like taking the time and like cherishing that those moments that you have with people because you don't know when. Hey, a, you know, an airplane's going to drop some blue ice onto you or, you know, you'll be in a like a grinder and a, a clumsy internal accidentally turn it on. Those are those are deaths in the show. That's not just me being like real uh, spontaneous with my morbid <laughs> endings here. Um, but I think that's like that's something that you had in your book. And I think that's a, a critical differentiator of, you know, your book compared to something that's like specifically just about death. I think that I think you're spot on. And I think the 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 lessons that I was learning really had a profound impact on me. And I was, I'm kind of an emotional guy anyways, and I tend to get involved in people's stories. And that's probably why I thought early on that, man, I don't know if I can do this for my entire life. Like meeting the meeting with families part was very, very emotional for me because, you know, you, you I think to be good at your job, I, you kind of put yourself in the person's position and I wanted to kind of do or try to, make it easier for them. And it became, it became very emotionally taxing. And so that, you know, it's a blessing and a curse. And I think, you know, there, there is this idea that the funeral director, you know, is really this person that either drinks at 9 30 AM in the morning to kind of dull in all the pain or, you know, takes that converse side. And I, I chose the converse. I, I, I broke away and went to my children's school for their plays. And I went home and tucked my son in and sons plural in. And so I think uh, it's just perspective, right? And how you can deal with it. And I'm very blessed to have had a great upbringing. And like I said, I think the empathy um, that you can learn or that I certainly learned uh, in being here was really the the great lesson of, of owning a funeral home. And, you know, I think you get beyond sort of that, the creepy stuff, you know, and obviously, you know, I always say the smells are something you can't really explain to some people and really you don't want to, you want to, the behind the scenes stuff needs to stay behind the scenes and you have to come here and give them, you know, the confidence and the proper memory picture that they want or that will give them their final, um, ease of mind. And so, uh, yeah, no, it's a, it's a real interesting dichotomy. And, uh, again, I wouldn't change it for the world. It was so profoundly positive in every facet, um, that I'm so grateful to have, have been here. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And the book is called life in 20 lessons. So do you have a favorite lesson out of the 20? I, I just, they're, they're all kind of favorites, but I think for me, I like to just say, um, you know, be thankful, 
be thankful. I think I think we we tend to overcomplicate things in our lives, and I think with social media and everything, you know, just hitting us all the time, twenty four seven. That idea of just stepping away, stepping off the habit trail of life, and just being thankful—it's so easy to say, but it's hard to practice. And I find myself doing that a lot. I, find, you know, I know it's weird, but I find my like I find myself waking up and saying, "Hey, thank you for today." You know, I'm not saying it's God or whomever, whomever you believe is fine with me, but I'm just like, ah, I made it another day, you know. And I think that's from my grandfather because he was he was always like that. He just was like, ah, the day I'm I'm up again, and you know, I'm upright and. Um, Again, I think being in the funeral business is very easy to do that for me because you're like, man, you see every the worst of the worst. And whether it's family behavior or accidents or children or whatever it is, um, I find it very easy to like ah, get up and it's like, thank you again. <laughs> it happened again. <laughs> yeah, much better than the alternative of like, yeah. oh, I woke up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Simple though, right? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Really simple. <laughs> yeah. Well, moving from one book to another, you also I uh, publish a novel called The Wood, which is oh a satire yeah. about life in Hollywood. So right. well, definitely want to talk about the book <laughs> itself, but for people that haven't lived in Hollywood, I I lived in LA for a little under two years. So I got oh, a boy. taste of Hollywood. But yes, you were you, you were ingrained there for more than a decade, and there's plenty of people who's only kind of vision of Hollywood is, you know, through award shows or movies or things like that. Right. So right. what is Hollywood like for someone that hasn't been there? I think, I think, you know, it's so funny because I think when you hear Hollywood, you're like, Ooh, Hollywood and how beautiful. Right. And I think you probably, if you've been there two years, is pretty good. You know that there's this whole underbelly and this whole, idea the idea of the wood is that there's really truly only about 15 people in the entire town that can say yes to a movie to getting a movie made and everyone else is sucking up to those 15 and i truly do believe that i mean the inner workings of how a script is a conceived and written and then gets approval on the various ladders up the line to getting made is totally fascinating to me. And of course, me as a prospective spec writer, writing on speculation that someone will buy it, that's the bottom of the bottom. You are the lowest form of life in Hollywood because you have nothing but the paper and pen to which you're gonna write an idea that germinates in your head, probably for a year or two to, to get to uh, maybe the idea of getting a manager or an agent. So. This whole idea, I think, uh, I try to demystify the the process in the wood, and but I really try to explain to that person in Peoria who doesn't understand it. And so my protagonist is a woman who is writing letters to someone who we will find out at the end of the the book. And in each of those letters, she is a studio executive or uh, trying to aspire to be higher and higher, as we all are. And she's telling this person about all the various steps along the way, like who the development girl are, is and who the spec writer and who the, you know, the producers are and all of the steps. So I'm trying to educate because when I was in Hollywood, I felt that there were tons of good movies made about Hollywood, 
but nothing that truly explained to the layperson really all the steps. So I love, you know, uh, the player was one, uh, swimming with sharks was another. And obviously the one that we all really know is the Netflix, the entourage, right? That was really the, the Mark Wahlberg series was really the, probably the best depiction of how it's all goes down. Um, but that was my genesis. I, I wanted to take my years in Hollywood and then set it against a kind of a funky backdrop with, you know, mentally ill people and drug addicts and, you know, uh, guys who had been in Hollywood their whole life. But really, I wanted to tap into how we all came. Where did we come from and how that shapes who we are? So for me, what I, the common denominator in all my writing is family, right? I want to, I truly believe that how you grow up and the siblings that you're surrounded with and the friends, family meaning your extended family, um, really defines who we are and who we become. And so I'm trying to always scratch the surface on family and family meaning they could be friends that you call family or truly your mom and dad and your siblings. So. Um, I really enjoyed writing The Wood because for me, it was totally opposite from this nonfiction thing. And it, I felt it was more about my personality. Writing fiction, I could be more me because I didn't have to be confined to this, the constraints of, you know, telling people about the funeral life. This was just more of my personality, being funny, being irreverent, being silly. And I really sparked to that. Um, it ended up being, it's my second book that published, but it was the third book that I wrote. I ended up writing the basketball book first. Um, but yeah, it was so enjoyable. And again, I, I was listening to your podcast with Craig Lear, Lanier, and, and he was talking about writing during the pandemic. And it was the same thing for me. I mean, there was a lull in work and I was like, man, I better just write, just sit down and write. You know, we're all confined in the house here. I'm just going to go off in the room and just start ripping it. And that's, that's truly what happened. So yeah, that was, it was a lot of fun. I think I'm going to gravitate more to fiction as we uh, go on in years. Awesome. Awesome. So can you, because I think that is an interesting dichotomy of going from this nonfiction, you know, serious uh, topic to a fiction and, and more lighthearted, like you're saying, getting to be more irreverent, kind of showcase your personality. So within the writing process itself, did you still kind of follow the same sort of formula or template or was it? radically different because it's fiction versus nonfiction for me it was radically different and again so the funny thing is is you know we you, the difference you and your viewers have to know that there's you know traditional publishing and there is self-publishing right and all my books are self-published not that i didn't try to find out with my first book i did everything created the abstract sent out to the new york city publishing houses and sat and waited. And I've heard that you could wait up to a year to get responses. Certainly, the the probably the fastest someone responded to one of my query letters was about nine months. And I'm like, dude, I'm not waiting for this. You know, <laughs> not with Amazon right here. So that that was the that was sort of the intrigue for me. And the second thing that I I really sparked to me about self-publishing was that I could kind of write whatever I wanted, mm -hmm. right? So with life in 20 lessons. I felt like 
if I was with a traditional publisher, they would be like, all right, Chris, let's do life in the next 20 lessons, you know, and, and stay in your genre and try to create that brand that you can see with like the guy, Mark Manson, who wrote uh, life is effed up. And every, every five, seven books after that are all about effed up in the, in the situation in your title. So for me, it was really intriguing to be able to self-publish and then just get out of that genre, nonfiction, and try something totally different. And look, at, I, don't, I don't hold myself out as some fantastic writer. I think I'm a little bit of a hack. But what I do is I, I'm a grinder, right? I will get it done and I will put it down on paper. So your, your question was, what was it like that you so radically different for me? very structured in the nonfiction world. I wanted to hit my 20 lessons. I wanted to give a message in each, really a structured book, whereas uh, The Wood was totally unstructured. I actually wrote it as a screenplay. I broke it down into three acts, like a three act structure of a, a screenplay. And um, my idea was, man, this is a movie and I wanna make it, I still do to this day, I wanna make this a movie because it's it's very visual. So. That was intriguing for me, and I encourage all like young writers, especially, don't just sit there waiting for a random house or you know penguin to pick you up or hatchet. Do it, just pound because you're creating content, and you will have something that will live in perpetuity. And who knows? You know there there's so many famous writers who weren't famous until the fifth and sixth book, right? We've heard that all, and that's. Uh, and the perfect example is the Queen's Gambit that we all watched during the pandemic, which was awesome. And apparently it was 20, 25 years in the making. So I'm one of those people that say, you know, don't talk about doing it. Just do it. You know, we all say, oh, I got this great novel. Well, shut your mouth and write it. You know, it's it's hard. But put that first step in front of the other and write it. So, yeah, that was that was the greatest thing for me the, so different in style, but something I wanted to try. Yeah, for sure. And and now you've got a third book as well. Yes. Tell us about that. The third book is is called um, Four Months in a Lifetime. And it's very, it's gone back to not nonfiction. I told you that I, I actually wrote it as my second book, but then I got the idea for The Wood and I thought it was much, much more commercial and much more visual. So I wanted to get that out first. But uh, Four Months in a Lifetime depicts my life with my middle son and his friends. I coach them in basketball from kindergarten to eighth grade every single year. And we were we were a really good team and we played in the parochial league. But then we also went up and played in like this super competitive AAU league. And we're this tiny class of, I think there were 12 boys in the class and I had eight of them on the team. So this, this really close knit group of boys and each year me and a couple of dads coached them. You could, it was cool, so cool. You see them getting better each year. And finally, you know, in eighth grade, it was our, our sort of swan song together. And, and this talks about specifically that year, that's four months is a season in our parochial league. 
and the memories, you know, for me will last a lifetime because I mean, what could be greater than, you know, coaching your son and his friends for nine years straight. So that's, that's the entire book. And then the, the other half of the book is about how I fell in love with uh, basketball from a very young age. And it, it shares those two stories. So it goes back and forth between real time that we're living and my, my history of growing up. Nice. That's so awesome. I'm going to have to give that a plug in my uh, basketball newsletter. That's oh, yeah, for sure. On. Yeah, I'll get you the complimentary copy. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Yeah. That also that also gave me a little bit of uh, a flashback to I uh, I think it was eighth grade for us as well. Seventh or eighth grade where we, our, our middle school team, very good. Yeah. And we played in like a traveling league as well. Awesome. But you know. that competition was such a step up from the other middle schools right? like it was such yeah. a wake-up yeah. call it was amazing yeah but that's good for the kids I mean that was the whole thing you know we I tell that story also the first four years in our parochial league we didn't lose a game and then we went up <laughs> like you like your traveling team we went up to this place around here it's called Hardwood Palace and we got smoked a couple times and it's so good for the boys because they're like you know, oh, we're not, we're not perfect, you know, and in our little sphere, it was very comfortable, but uh, no, that's a great reality. It was, uh, it was fun to experience that with them. Yeah. I think in the moment you're kind of like, mm, I don't like yeah. this as much, but then afterwards, you're like, no, that was good. That was good. I'm glad we had yeah. That. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We were talking before recording. Uh, this was news to me. I didn't even know you were doing this. You've got a new uh, a new business venture going on called Fun and Moving, and yes. it sounds fantastic. So what's it all about? <laughs> so, yeah, thank you. It's called funandmoving.com, and it's a website specifically designed for those over 65 uh, to exercise. And the genesis of it, like I said, I had a great relationship with my grandfather, and my I distinctly remember him. He was this avid outdoorsman, German immigrant, came over, worked the streets of New York City in an unair conditioned truck delivering milk and eggs. And, you know, it was a fascinating story. Six days a week, 12-hour days. And, and he and I just had this great once-in-a-lifetime uh, grandfather grandson relationship and it was more than that we were really friends and we would do a lot of stuff together but he as he aged you know he, it was funny because he was just really kind of wasn't really cut but he was ripped and he would be like you know I see the gray hairs and the wrinkles but inside I feel really good Chris <laughs> and so as I've aged I kind of feel, I see the same thing, right? Like I'm feeling good, but like it's starting to get a little grayer and you know, the, the hairline's going up, you know? So all those things. So I said, you know, this would be perfect. And I got the idea really at the funeral home, having all these relationship with the assisted living communities around here and seeing people not properly exercising. And um, so we started this site. We started creating videos first in the chair, couple levels in the chair and then finally standing. But then also we have these, what we do, we call bed exercises. We exercise people who are either non-ambulatory or have had a stroke or something like that. And what, what differentiates us is all of our routines are created by an ACE certified trainer. And ACE is the sort of official national organization that certifies the NCAA and all that. So 
their, their doctor has looked them over. And so we feel that we have a nice little niche in the exercise community and we're just about to launch here in the next month. So it's, it's very exciting. And it could be, you can download it on your app and, you know, grandma and grandpa can go off and exercise on their own. And it's very, very affordable. And yeah, we're really excited about it. Yeah, that's that's so awesome, and I think uh, definitely an underserved market. Um, yeah, I think for so. sure. I think you know, obviously, home exercising has grown quite a bit over the past year. I've even had a few guests on this very podcast that have have launched either new products entirely or new services within something that they've already had. Um, but again, yeah, largely targeting either uh, you know younger people or like a certain certain subsection within that and so it's it's good to see especially i mean both of my parents are over 65 so it's i, ho- sure. I hope they're okay with me saying that i think yeah no yeah, but, <laughs> mine too yeah. and mine are cool with me saying it perfect, ready. perfect yes um so yeah i think i think that's super exciting and congrats on the uh, the launch coming up very shortly here and you can either for for this business or any of the ones that you've had, I always like asking this since you've had a lot of experience as an entrepreneur, what's something that surprises you about running a business? It's a great question. And I think it, it changes every day. I think that's the thing. I think you don't know what to expect every day. There are a lot of fires, if not bombs. And I think the if you're into a more traditional nine to five existence, then don't do it because it's, you know, it's Saturdays, it's Sundays, it's the clock starts to not become, you know, you lose track of the days and stuff like that. But I think it's truly, truly rewarding to be the sort of the master of your own domain and control of your own destiny. And that's, I think that's what is attractive about it all to me. I grew up, I was very fortunate in the ninth grade, when I started my high school career, my father started a business in our house, literally in our house. And I got to see him grow this business from, you know, having people come into our living room at night and work with my father and my mother cook meals and all sit around the table and eat. And then it would grow. Then he rented a place in town and then he bought his own place in town. And so I, Truly, I truly believe, even more so than my other brothers, um, believe that the the spirit of the that entrepreneurial spirit was sort of injected into me at that early age. And I, in seeing him do that, he was a very smart man, and he he really loved what he did. Like he he would talk about like you and I would probably talk about sports with the glee on our face. He would talk about civil engineering that way. And, <laughs> and and that was really cool to me. I mean, I knew civil engineering wasn't for me, but I could see the joy in his face. And I was like, hmm, that's pretty cool. You know, if if he's happy what he does and he's making money at it, that 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 was the first, you know, sort of light bulb moment at a very young age that said, I like, I like this thing that my dad did here. It's very cool. And it, although I don't like his field that he's in. Um, I want to do something like that. So, yeah, I think, you know, again, it goes back to family, right? It goes back to, is that seed planted? What if, what if my dad didn't do that? Would that seed have been planted? I'm not certain it would have. Yeah, I think, I think that's a, a very interesting uh, tie back to, yeah. like you were saying, back to family. And yeah. I think also a nice little segue into our next question, which I always like to ask, what's something you wish you were asked more frequently Yours is what is the meaning of life? Let's get yeah, real small. deep here. I went small yeah. there. 
No, it's, it's, you know, I feel like, and I, and it sounds a little pompous actually to say that I wish more people asked me about that, but I, I, I mean it in a more simple way. I really do. And I, and I think that for me, um, I just sometimes wish that people would stop me in the street or my friends would stop me and say, Hey, tell me what is the meaning of life? Because I feel like, again, I'm reminded on a daily basis here at the funeral home. And again, speaking with people, hearing those things. And, you know, there's one thing you can't get more of. It's so trite, you can't get more time, right? And I think that we all in our society tend to overcomplicate things with everything that we do. And I think the the simpler, smaller moments are really truly what has meaning and what gives you um, that buoyancy in life that you need. And for me, again, I have, I grew up in a family like that, really tight nuclear family, grandparents, very involved, very much in our lives. And that's the way I wanted to do with my sons. And I have three sons and it's the same thing with us. Although look at, don't get me wrong. They're up on their Xbox and, you know, doing what normal teenagers do at times, but you know, they're in my house and we're together. And that is the greatest thing you could ever be. Just forge those relationships with your children or your parents um, at, as soon as you can, if you're, uh, you're not taking advantage of it right now. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And we're going to take a, a skirt, like a hard right here, going from <laughs> the meaning of life to our top three, which I'm very excited for this, your top three candy bars ever made. We're not just talking okay. current day here, it sounds okay. like. Okay. <laughs> Now I'm I'm hoping you're you're a younger man, so I don't know if you know this one, the marathon bar. I I, I know of it. I don't think I've ever had it though. Okay, now I don't think it exists anymore. Maybe in some novelty shops, it was a chocolate covered cable, and inside was just caramel. So milk chocolate cable with caramel, but it was about this long. Loved it. Great great candy bar. Second great one. Not a lot of people know this one. The whatchamacallit. Ooh. Remember that? I do, yeah. Milk chocolate, crispies, and caramel with a little peanut butter flavor. Okay. Love it, third. Love it. <laughs> you love it, right? Third. What was the third? Oh my god, I blanked on the third. I was gonna say Snickers, but that's too pedestrian. <laughs> I think it was. Now we'll go Snickers for now until <laughs> I remember the third, but that's, that's the top three. But again, I want to see more whatchamacallit and more marathon in my life. Yeah. I mean, well, how about to... you? Do you have a three? Oh, that's a, I mean, that's a terrific question. I, I mean, I, I kind of think a hundred grand is pretty. Um... Oh, that's, that was it. That oh, was, was it? it? Okay, grand. Perfect. Well then. Grand. Yeah, yeah, that was it. <laughs> that's phenomenal. Yeah, I think a hundred yeah. grand. It took me a while to finally get into. It. I I don't know why. I think I had a friend who didn't like it, so I was just like, I don't like it either, and I had never really yeah, given yeah. it a fair shake. Um, I mean, good dense caramel in it. Yeah, that's why. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's very, uh, it's very nice. I'll have one right after <laughs> this. Maybe go find one. No, um, I don't know if Reese's counts as a, yeah, a candy bar because sure. I mean, sure. the kind of cups. But it's a classic. I also feel like that's pretty pedestrian. And then I don't know if this. Like, I don't think I could eat as much of this as some other candy bars, but I've always liked Charleston Chews. I think those are a fun little, like... That's close on my list. So that, for me, was like a... 
a public pool memory because the Charleston Chew would come in vanilla chocolate strawberry and then they would freeze them and then you whack it on the concrete and it breaks up in pieces and that was like a great summer treat at the public pool so i'm with you on the charleston nice shoe. nice i've never tried the strawberry one i gotta really yeah i gotta oh, milk it chocolate with strawberry look it up it's okay. awesome okay. You, have, you were a vanilla guy right yes that's the the wrapper with yeah. the vanilla yeah, that's pretty good <laughs> <laughs> well, I got, right. I've got some homework to do after this. It sounds yeah, you like. do. Really? <laughs> Go find a marathon bar. <laughs> Done. I'm writing it down, writing it down. <laughs> well, Chris, if people want to learn more about you or learn more about anything that you're doing, where can they find you? Yeah. So, uh, chrismeyerauthor.com. That site will be up and going pretty soon. I have, I'm on Amazon, all the bookstores, Barnes and Noble, wherever you want. Um, uh, my third book will be coming out in September and please, please get parents, grandparents, friends to funandmoving.com. Word of mouth is the greatest way to spread. And we believe we're truly going to help a lot of people with this site. So, uh, we definitely grandmas and grandpas wanted, as they say in our log line. So that would be great. Fantastic. Well, Chris, thank you so much for for chatting. This was fantastic and looking forward to all that's to come. Yeah, I really appreciate that you having me and letting me talk about everything. Thank you for the time. Absolutely. And of course, we got to end with a corny joke, as always. I tried to even make it a little death related, but hopefully uh, I don't think I don't think this is too morbid at all. But I'll be the last last one to let you down kind of thing. Sort of. Yeah. Yeah. There was I actually feel like I maybe told one recently that was sort of similar about by a coffin being the last thing I needed, but uh, we'll be we'll be a little <laughs> a little more uh, historical, I guess, with this. On his deathbed, Achilles realized that his side wasn't going to win the war, and so he uttered his last words: "Defeat hurts." Very nice. Very nice. Yes. Get after it today, people. <laughs> Good People, Cool Things is produced in Austin, Texas. If you were a fan of this episode, go ahead and hit that follow button. That helps more people hear the show. As always, you can send me a message, joey at goodpeoplecoolthings.com. Thank you to all of the guests who have been on Good People, Cool Things. You can check out all the old episodes via goodpeoplecoolthings.com. As always, thank you for listening and have a wonderful day. Woo!